0: Upon knowing that world before us, before us, manicured with such fortresses as feet once knew, and school kids flitting twixt brine and bubble, learned residue, our guesses for worlds after us, before us, seem reflected in that sea-glass compositions. That fellow with the fins might prompt a train, brain-like hollow coral cobblestones. Keep the sea star for an architect, keep the technicolor realm untelevised that quiet, that time, perhaps just an introvert's paradise.
1: Hey everyone, welcome back to Scene. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about Jeanville Prue Power. And thank you, Aaron, for always starting us off with such a lovely poem. This one was especially great, might I say so? Did you feel, what was the inspiration for this poem?
0: The inspiration was, as usual, the subject of the episode, this lady who is notable, amongst other things, for inventing the aquarium. And you know I love aquariums and tiny aquatic creatures. You know I've had what we've detailed in many an episode prior, boat lust. And Mm -hmm. this kind of comes upon my life in fits and spurts. And currently I'm really in the the midst of some boat lust. And (laughs) so I was really drawing the parallel, poetically, I like to think, between aquariums and how they present this tiny almost television-like but three-dimensional world curated and manicured and populated with whatever its owner wants to populate it with and what we do with the solar scene which is design and in some way manifests every week a utopian future so yeah aquariums and utopias it's one in the same
1: yeah the aquarium is a living diorama and solar scene is a vocal diorama one could say
0: it's also like i mentioned the sea star mm. and coral these things seem so alien and so ancient and they i'm not alone but they just they're so creatively inspiring it's a little bit of a divergence from last week when we talk about Harambe. And I said, part of the reason he was so captured the imagination so much, I think, is because he was a monkey. And obviously humans and monkeys have this special relationship. It's almost like that, but kind of the opposite, where because they are so far detached from us evolutionarily, it makes me think of not the far past, but the far future. So
1: for sure. Yeah. The ocean still seems. Like a frontier. I know it's been explored, but I feel like it's been explored by such a handful of people. Mm-hmm. Whereas nature has, it seems, been explored by a wider variety of people. Land. Yeah. yeah well, land. I think
0: I think it's because the likes of you or I have never really seen... Like when you go underwater in the ocean, you close your eyes for the most part. Mm-hmm. So you don't see this stuff unless it's on television And then it may as well be as invented as like the Twilight Zone or something like that. True,
1: and it also requires specialized equipment, whereas going on a hike for the most part doesn't.
0: Mm -hmm. So for this semester, what we're doing is each episode will focus on an individual, usually historical, usually an inspiration to one or both of us. And we will try and draw lessons from their life in a way that is part biographical, but maybe a little bit more so theoretical or thematic. Viewing them more as case studies, maybe for what they represent or different lessons we can learn and pull from their lives to design the solo scene. So for Jean Vilpru Power, who is actually notable in this semester, I guess is a weird thing to admit to start the episode in that neither of us knew of her before we decided to cover her, whereas everyone else has been something that we've somebody that we've researched or read about or at least kind of peripherally were aware of like theodore roosevelt she was to be honest the result of me searching for notable female inventors or something like that or famous women in science and i guess that's a little bit of a of a shallow way to find a subject but one we felt like we should have some kind of gender balance during the semester and two as we'll probably get into it goes almost without saying but a lot of Famous women in history have kind of been minimized to the point that you don't know their names, mm-hmm. whereas ordinarily maybe you would. She'd be more of a household name.
1: Yeah, more than anyone else, I think we will get into her actual biography because it's quite interesting and deserves more widespread recognition, I believe.
0: A deep dive, some might say. Point
1: yeah, intended. a deep dive. And out of all of the people we've covered so far, she's the most inspiring one personally. Oh, nice. Which I'm excited to talk a bit about as one half of the population of the soul scene at the moment. I think if I resonate with her quite a lot, then... Yeah. That's a good thing for the soul scene The woman half. Yes. So, Jean was born in the middle of the French Revolution, 1794, in rural France. Which is a very long time ago when it comes to female inventors... Because until 1945, women weren't even allowed in a lot of scientific societies, universities, Mm -hmm. and so on. So for her to have rose to global recognition and been quite formative in the field of natural science, then round of applause to her. So she was born in 1794, a 100 miles from the coast of France. So during her childhood, she had no exposure to the ocean. She just lived in a normal rural, like farming area.
0: Provincial towns, I might say. Mm-hmm.
1: Fortunately, her mother really valued education and knew how to read and taught Jean how to read, write, educated her at home. They were so rural that there were no schools, even. So, had her mom not taken the initiative, she wouldn't have been educated, would have just been educated in the womanly ways of. <laughs> Sewing and so on.
0: No schools, and also no schools of fish.
1: No schools of fish for sure. And then, interestingly enough, when she turned seventeen, she left home to go to Paris, as every great heroine does. And she actually walked two hundred miles to get to Paris. She didn't take the train. She didn't take the <laughs> the metro. She just walked on her own two feet two hundred miles to go to Paris to work as a Seamstress. Seamstress. See, step one of how I resonate with her, also a seamstress.
0: Yeah, in the Paris of North America.
1: Is that right? So, in Paris, she worked as a seamstress and rose to such a claim that after the defeat of Napoleon, the French king was regaining authority. He was newly appointed, and he was trying to do a lot of those story, fairy tale dealings of marrying people to try and have these relationships that are good for the government so he was marrying his nephew with a sicilian princess and for that royal wedding the first royal wedding of this new regime jean was actually asked to make the wedding dress Mm -hmm. for the princess that's one of my goals now is to be asked to make a wedding dress for a princess And so at the wedding, because Jean was actually invited, she didn't just make the dress and have to sit at home. She was allowed to come. She met her husband. So he was obviously of some notoriety. He wasn't just a random peasant. She kind of married up, as they say.
0: It sounds like a film. I know I'm I'm too much of an indoor kid, and I, I talk too much about movies ordinarily, but I really think this sounds like a Disney movie, and perhaps it was because of some Disney movies, maybe some of her notoriety went into some of those stories. I don't know. Because that's the first act. The long walk, the starting from nothing, going to getting getting invited to the wedding, and then meeting the Prince Charming.
1: Well, he's Irish. Yeah. That's why his last name is Power. Okay. And then he, yeah, was in Sicily as a merchant. And yes. So I guess you can call him a Prince Charming.
0: Merchants are fun. Yes. Back in the day, you could meet people, mm. be a, a hub, a spoke.
1: Yeah. So they met, they fell in love. Yeah, very romantic. And they moved to Sicily. Poor Jean had to move to this lovely town called Messina, right on the coast, beautiful nature. And she was so excited to mm. finally be near the ocean because her whole life she had really been quite isolated from the ocean.
0: It sounds a little bit less like you were inspired and more like you're just envious.
1: Perhaps. Some could say that. And when she moved, she didn't have to work anymore because he was so rich. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So she started going on lots of walks. Mooches, as I call them. (laughs) (laughs) The the 19th century mooch. So she walked around Sicily and started collecting samples of nature, seashells, and so on, just out of curiosity. And then she was like, hmm. There's books, but all of the books back then were mainly in Latin, all of the um, more academic texts. Mm-hmm. So she starts learning Latin. She starts learning a bunch of different languages because she's obviously French, but then her husband's English and Sicilian, so he's like Italian and English. So she l- starts just learning languages so that she could communicate better and so that she could read these texts. And I feel like this is a good opportunity for the first scene lesson. I think
0: so too. M- what I would say is it's about prioritizing above all else the world around you and also something about the fact that you don't have to have lofty aims ambitions and scope all the time it can just be like I want to learn the name of every type of rock tree bird insects squid on and around this island mm-hmm. and I'm going to list it and I'm going to make a pretty drawing of each and Actually, this is relevant to both today's episode and next week. I was curious what it means to be a naturalist. Cause we also threw the world, the word around when we were talking about Roosevelt. And it seems like such one, a slightly outdated role or profession. And two, such a kind of unattainable thing for someone living in a city and mm-hmm. speaking into a microphone. It's like, who can, how can you be a naturalist unless you'd be like SpongeBob Nature Pants? and throw your spatula to the floor, rip off your square suit, and go and join the jellies. Mm -hmm. How can you do so? Well, the definition of naturalist just says, an expert in, or a student of, natural history. So I think this lesson is kind of like... In a sense, it's humility to just say... I don't have to contribute anything mm-hmm. to a scientific canon. I just want to learn, partially for the sake of learning, partially for myself, partially, you know, it, it may help here or there. But it's, it's primarily the joy of knowing your surroundings.
1: Exactly. She didn't set out with the intention of making any discoveries, That's any I mean. inventions. She just was like, these are cool shells. Yeah, exactly. I want them in my closet, so I take them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and yeah, as we've been talking about, like as you said, Teddy Roosevelt and a lot of other historical scientists, they learned from nature. They used nature as a teacher and I'm starting to reread Braiding Sweetgrass and forgot how big of a theme that is in that book. The mm-hmm. author of that book, Robin Wall Kimmer, she went into biology after years and years of years of being a naturalist as a kid and as a teenager.
2: Yeah,
1: And they were like, um, you can't just say these things about nature without having used the right tools, the right techniques to measure it. And she came to kind of understand, yeah, there's a scientific method, but there's also nature can just tell us things by watching it and paying attention. And yeah, now we'll move on in the biography because I'll get into her techniques as she started to kind of systematize her, her interests. Traditionally natural scientists, natural historians, they had these cabinets of curiosities. So they would go out and they would collect samples. They would sometimes collect live samples and put them into bottles of formaldehyde or what oh, have you to preserve Oh, it's a pickled them. eyeball. Exactly. So it's what you picture, yeah, the pickled eyeball, like the unicorn horn that they actually captured from an airwall, all of these things. So that's what the natural historians would do. They'd have these cabinets, that go in, they'd study them, dead. They'd always be dead. Mm-hmm. And then Jean was like, hmm... I like living things. (laughs) I want pets. That's what she said to James. And Jean started to form her own cabinet of curiosities. But as the open-minded, creative individual she was, she Mm -hmm. developed her own fixative, which is like the stuff you can use to preserve animals. So one day she gets home. She has captured a turtle. Oh, I'm out of fixative. I'm just going to put this turtle into a bottle of alcohol until the next day when I have my fixative... To pour them in because alcohol is like a low level preservative or whatever. Okay, have you.
0: it's like turtle vodka or something. Yeah, turtle
2: whiskey.
1: Um, she wakes up the next morning, the turtle is just roaming around the house. It Drunk. had crawled out of the <laughs> bottle, probably a little bit tipsy. Yeah, it had crawled out of the jar of alcohol and she was like, Um, excuse me, why are you alive? Because it shouldn't be alive. And then she realized she started talking to people, turtles are very resilient to a lot of different really extreme temperatures. And then she was like, you you got that one up on me and kept the turtle as a pet. This is the first of many pets for Jean.
0: Can I ask you something? Yes. If you were to have a cabinet of curiosities, mm-hmm. either thrust upon you or something that you built yourself, what's one thing that you would want in there? For me, I would want some kind of dried... Because I think everything is usually wet or gelatinous mm-hmm. or bubbling. I want something like a like a beef jerky, but make it seaweed or something like that. Okay. Something... Some crusty texture.
1: That makes sense. Some dried coral.
0: Yeah, but a little bit thinner. It could even be like, you know how instead of doors, like the door to my cabinet would be instead of a regular thing that you slide or pull open with a handle, it would be like those curtains that are just beads. Mm. But instead of beads, it would be seaweeds. Okay. Or something.
1: Fun. I would like some kind of a crystal. Yeah. Like an ocean pearl or something like that. Okay. I do like shiny things.
0: (laughs) I would like some kind of really precious jewel or gem.
1: For me, just whatever 20 carat (laughs) diamond. (laughs) I'll just take 20
0: carats. Pickled.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you want to know what she named the turtle?
0: Mm. What's that guy from Finding Nemo, Spike?
1: She named him Mignon. Not very creative. Oh, cute. She named him cute. And, but she did train it to come when called, which is... I don't...
0: That sounds like a lie. That
1: might be a bit of a... Because <laughs> this is what I was thinking. This is the next transformation into a Disney princess. She has the... She well, has yeah. The
0: I also... She had these two other pets. Beach Martins. Mm-hmm. Which are kind of like these little Weasley things. I just imagine her kind of strolling the ocean or like clicking or like clicking her fingers. And then yeah. they would come and sit on her shoulder like Nausicaa, something like that. Yeah, and, except they were nocturnal, I think, but...
1: She was so into these beach martins that she literally got a whole tree inside of her house mm. and birds inside of her house for them to hunt so that she could observe their hunting patterns.
0: Yeah, you know that wizard from Lord of the Rings? Mm-hmm. The brown one. Yeah. I feel like she's kind of like him.
1: Radagast. Yeah. Yeah. So she just started in her house kind of turning it into a, <laughs> a dry aquarium. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess you could say an ecosystem in itself, and she started observing the animals. Because in nature, you couldn't really observe their hunting patterns because it's hard to track them down. But in here, she could watch them and Mm -hmm. take notes. She then started befriending fishermen to show her cool animals. So the fishermen would go out and they'd maybe capture a weird snail and they'd bring it to her and be like, hey, look at this. So she started having that relationship. And then she would keep the, she wanted to start observing these aquatic creatures in her house because it's hard to observe them in the natural environment. But then she realized that the water becomes very dirty, so you have to constantly, like, replace it. And she wanted to start studying octopuses, which apparently are infamous for being really hard to keep in aquariums. Even today, in, like, the big aquariums, mm. they're really hard to keep. So she developed this apparatus, I suppose, a slated box, which she would capture these the certain type of octopus and put inside of them and sit on her boat, and lean down, and watch them do their thing. Yes,
0: yeah, so it was basically a, it was an offshore, tiny research lab. Mm-hmm. I think one of the first in the world, because I was looking into a little bit of the history of aquariums, and it's kind of like, through ancient times, it's not like people never had fish in controlled environments, mm-hmm. but as far as I can tell, it was never for scientific purpose. Mm-hmm. And it was also, they would never quite tweak the parameters of said, controlled environments to, you know, consciously to suit the the organisms they'd keep. It would be more like we have a pond that we keep pretty protected and we have like koi fish in there and we're breeding Mm -hmm. them or something like that. But that's a it's a very different prospect, right? For
1: sure. And this brings us to the second lesson of the Solocene, and that is thinking outside of the box because these specific octopus that she was studying for hundreds and dare I say, thousands of years, they were thought to be these octopuses. They're the only one that have shells. Mm. And weirdly enough, they're not attached to their shells. So they're similar to hermit crabs in that way, but hermit crabs steal their shells, obviously. People thought that these guys also stole their shells because they're not attached. They're kind of a weird shape. It doesn't really make sense. Yeah, I
0: saw the pictures. Yeah. They look like... Hats. They, yeah, they look a little bit more like like a mollusk than they do mm-hmm. an octopus or something.
1: Yeah, so they have these little hat shells. But they also have two of their eight legs are really big. They're kind of like hands. And so there's these like ancient drawings of these creatures. And everyone up until Jean thought that they used the shell as a boat and the big hands as a sail. Honestly, that so, sounds
0: cool. And I'm going to steal that for a book.
1: Well, you know who did steal it? Jules Verne.
0: Villain another week. Ba-da-ba-da-da. <laughs> whoa
1: whoa.
0: (laughs) (laughs) i should give that a rest i think um (laughs) the precise moment when most people click off this video that was
1: (laughs) is is jules were the villain of the week
0: the villain of the week is captain nemo okay so it's kind of similar that we came we came across those things independently yeah and i as you know was struggling for a villain of the week because your Mm -hmm. suggestion was the patriarchy, and I was like, I don't want to. I don't want to be that person uh, talking about that on the episode. So I was like, I'll choose a fictional villain, Captain Nemo. But then the more I remembered of Twenty Thousand Leagues, it's been a while since I read that one. I realized that he's not actually a villain. He's kind of my role absolute models, role model in life. Yeah, yeah. I don't have it exactly, but he was talking about how he doesn't identify with any people. He only identifies with the oppressed sea. Lion. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, he changes his name and lives in a submarine very far beneath and collects a bunch of cool stuff and plays the organ very well. So, I mean, can we make him? He, he is...
1: He's misanthropic. He's
0: misanthropic. He's, he's consumed by hate. And the reason that I, I came to him is because jean Villepreux, she was something of a victim during her life. I mean, maybe not out of the ordinary for a woman living in the the 1800s, but as you said, she was kind of turned away by all the scientific societies of the era, which I would think ordinarily she, or today she would be quite celebrated in. And also there was a story about how on that walk to Paris, she was like mugged and had all her things stolen or something like mm. that. And I was just kind of contrasting what she went on to do with her life with what Captain Nemo kind of shelled himself away and became yeah, really consumed by vengeance towards his wrongdoers, which were imperialists. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, he he's not a villain because he does help people, but he's maybe a little bit more of a an anti-hero or a tragic figure. I guess, shout out, Captain Nemo. The other ideas I had were Hank from Finding Dory. Okay. Remember that orange guy? <laughs>
1: yes. But also,
0: he's not a villain. He just kind of has um, sneaky ways. Mm. And also, I was trying to find if there were any really famous hunters of See things like people who went out and sorted whales yeah, like and squids and, and everything like that, but it seemed a little bit dark, so
1: yeah, we're not going to go into the Moby Dick.
0: No, that's for next zone. week. We'll yeah. do an episode on Herman and Melville.
1: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the name of these fairly special octopus, which I kind of want a drawing of now, I'm just really obsessed with them. Did you
0: see her drawing of them?
1: Yeah, that's the only surviving drawing of hers.
0: She was also a weirdly talented.
1: That's the thing. Drawer. She's just a Renaissance woman. Like her painting, this is the only one that survived of the Argonaut. She always decided to do biological drawings, but have them set in like the right setting. So it's not just like a biological drawing of the octopus yeah. it's on some coral. I like that. a starfish beside it. It made it's just it look so like pretty.
0: more of a, I don't know, a Michelangelo painting or
1: something like mm-hmm. that. And get to it later, but all of her work, all of her paintings were lost in a shipwreck. Very, very. Cinematic. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Maybe we need to make the Jean movie. So, yeah, they're called Argonauts. Again, another literary reference. She didn't name them, but they were named after the Argonauts in the Greek history, who were the first sailors on the Mediterranean, supposedly, like in this. Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah, Jason and the Argonauts. And so they were like, these guys were even before the real Argonauts because obviously they have their boats and their sails. So they named them Argonauts. And I just think that's really fun. They were first named Nautilus because there was a similar looking creature and they kind of thought they were both Nautilus. Mm -hmm. But then they slowly realized that they were two different species.
0: I want to pull another lesson from this for the solo scene, which sounds like a really childish one, but it's about overcoming your fears mm-hmm. because though I am really fascinated and at times enamored with the ocean it also terrifies me and I think this is a big part of the fascination especially the deep and also I think just weird creatures creep me out mm-hmm. as you know I'm, I'm quite jumpy if I see a shadow that I don't quite like the shape of I will kick it and mm. spiders those are a big no. And I think if I were to see eels, because there's some things that it's like you see pictures of, you can stare at it all day.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But there are other things that when you're around them, it's a different story. And I yeah. think these kind of weird squids are one. I think mm-hmm. I mean I, and octopus, I actually made randomly for for this was a high school project to, to choose our spirit animal.
2: Mm-hmm. I
0: chose a squid. <laughs> I did. Interesting. But but what I'm saying is that if I was actually around them, I think I would be quite spooked by them. Mm -hmm. The way they move, they're alien. Imagine if it kind of went onto your wrist and you couldn't shake it off. You'd be creeped out.
1: I'm especially terrified of squid, octopus, and submarines. Submarines. Those are some of probably my biggest fears.
0: Yeah, so what I'm saying is, I mean, we don't know if Jean was ever spooked by these things. I think most people Mm -hmm. have at least a hesitation initially you Mm -hmm. see these weird alien creatures and she knew even or was even less familiar with the sight of them than we are today ironically but it's about kind of compartmentalizing said unknowns maybe literally in compartments or cabinets and familiarizing yourself with them learning about them and you become more comfortable and Mm -hmm. less scared and i think it's a good general rule in life or ambition to try to become less scared.
1: I like that. Yeah. Hmm. Do you want to know what the the big hands are used for?
0: <laughs> okay. Going
1: back to the, <laughs> <to> the young <laughs> ones. Sorry, I can't get o- can't get over them. So. Can I guess? Yeah, sure.
0: Do they play drums? No. Oh, I thought if there was like a big ocean jamboree, they'd be the ones mm-hmm. going. Bop, 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 bop,
1: bop. Yeah. Well, I'm sure if we in the movie. Yeah.
0: They yeah, can of course play I that think, role. As I mean, well. that song might be taken, but. <laughs>
1: So everyone thought that the big hands were used as sails. They thought that the Argonauts stole their shells because when they're born, they're very tiny. And it's like, mm, they probably don't really have shells. But actually, what they have is this really tiny, they're born without shells. But then they put the hands over their heads, kind of like a hat, and then secrete shell material. And they make the shells with their hands. That
0: sounds like a Pokemon.
1: It's the only like creature that does that. Mm. Because a lot of them, they make their shells through like, mineralization, kind of like... It builds and builds and builds yeah. but they just like in a few days they're like well gonna just make the shell and they do it with their hands and if it breaks what do they do they'll take like the broken piece and they'll like heal it with their <laughs> shell <laughs> with their hand it's just like the craziest thing very pokemon very fake
0: i feel like Jean might have been lying about that i'm not gonna
1: lie well the thing is she wasn't. It's, it's not been like, studied afterwards. Yeah, it's guess, been so. studied after. It's so, not like she just like told everyone that and it was like, oh, and they actually are extinct. Uh,
0: yeah, no, they they put their hands over their head and they make it. Yeah. Uh, what if it breaks? They fix it.
1: Yeah, that was <laughs> one of the first experiments she did was breaking their shells to see like what they did. Ethical. Yeah. Well, the thing is it doesn't hurt them.
0: Mm. How do you know?
1: It's not a part of them. It's like cutting hair, which you still can't wrap your head around, I know.
0: I'm convinced that cutting hair hurts. <laughs> I just have this really infantile um fear of like the barber shop.
1: Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Um so yeah, that was Jean. And then in eighteen forty three her and James decided to move back to the motherlands of Paris and London. So they moved from Sicily, they were on a boat, do, and the boat sunk. They were all fine, they lived long, happy lives. Jean lived to be like ninety, which is kind of crazy as well for that time period. But you know, good for her. But after the shipwreck, she was pretty like, well, there goes literally all of my work, all of my paintings, everything. So she just moved into public speaking. So random, but she just started giving lectures and so on. Mm. And after this also, because she stopped her work, she still remained active within the scientific community, mainly because there was the aquarium craze. And she started to realize people weren't crediting her with the discovery. And so she actually was friends with Richard Owen, the man who kind of infamously like, debated Charles Darwin on evolution. So she was friends with him, and he was her proxy within all of the scientific circles. So he started disseminating her papers. He made an entry into the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Like, for the definition of aquarium, her name is included in it, mm-hmm. saying she invented it. So he was... I mean, that's quite generous, honestly. And... So yeah, she was a part of the scientific community through this proxy situation, and she was really one of the first women to ever have a proxy within a lot of these circles, which is pretty cool, and she was a trailblazer. That we know. Anyways. Yeah, exactly.
0: I guess this is another kind of lesson or just like element that I would like to mention for the solo scene when I think about this podcast and that ideal future. I think about it in a semi kind of realistic or, or borderline academic way, but also as a kind of, we mentioned before, biomimicry or like world building fantasy, because I'm more of a, a fiction author by trade. Can I say that yet? I don't know. And one of the details from her life that has always captured my imagination is these grand scientific societies, mm. like that she was not really a part of, except as you mentioned, through this man. So one of these, or I think the most famous one is called the Royal Geographic Society in the UK. Mm -hmm. And there's also the Explorers Club in the USA, which I think Roosevelt may have been like an honorary member of or or a real member. And there's just something so awe-inspiring about these institutions for science where people sit around and draw squids Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and have like museums. And it's kind of formal. I think it's very unique to this era of exploring the world and now as we were saying it's not really a thing because we don't really do expeditions to the north pole anymore or if they do they're kind of retreading ground that's already been tread but if we could somehow recapture that spirit something that caught my eye further is that said royal geographic society in the uk started as just like a very small dinner club Mm. that it gradually grew out from as more people started attending so it's Something we mentioned on the podcast before is the lack of serendipity in a world dominated by digital interactions and the internet as we are in today. But also, I mean, it's also the lack of formal groups and institutions that we can be a part of and meet people, share ideas, basically.
1: Mm, People talk a lot about third places, it just reminds me of, but it's not that we need third places. It's like we need third things. That groups. Because it's like you have your family, you have your
2: Workplace. work,
1: but then like for hobbies, you don't really have community. You do a lot of them in isolation. The community is completely online. Exactly. And another thing is it's not like social mobility, but it's almost like organizational mobility because you say it starts as a dinner club, but now it's like, well, then you're going to need to get funding and apply for grants but yeah it's just it's like weird. because in order to break through even like the ngo space you need quite a lot of
0: i mean i'm sure these guys were wealthy they
1: probably were wealthy that's true but it's just like i feel like there probably is space for a bit more mobility within organizations to grow because right now if you start a dinner club but then people start coming how are they going to learn about it for one thing but if they do start coming mm. it's like everyone only has 600 square feet to deal with
0: yeah i mean i also think it's part, partly what we were saying about ambition and scope wherein now at least you and i if you were to start something like that you'd feel the need to be like and here's what we want to do for science mm-hmm. whereas maybe if it was more of a community like let's get together and draw pictures of all the local trees And then suddenly while you're doing so, you notice actually what's going on with this one. And then you say, you maybe you make a small, you start researching it and realizing that nobody knows about this and you guys can observe it over time. But it's more about just, I suppose starting not with the intention of making money.
1: Well, it's like when people it? always feel like they need to monetize their hobbies. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily monetization in this case, but it's still discovery or like some kind of social change that you feel like you need to enact. It's similar to when we start the podcast. It's like, can't just have a podcast. We have to like do something, yeah. make a change, change the world, which is sure a fun prospect, but not everybody has to have that. You can just have your dinner party, draw your squirrels, <laughs> post them. Maybe put them up on a communal bulletin board, yeah. and then that's that.
0: That's also because what you said—like, how is anyone going to know about it today? That saturation, where the the society cannot be what actually occupies most of your time. Most of your time has to be keeping up with trends on TikTok, so that you can post about the society, mm-hmm. which is
1: yeah.
0: maybe me uh, ranting a little bit about Soasin. But
1: <laughs> no, it's fine. I. <laughs> I feel like you divulge every conversation into but less, but I bring every conversation back to just burning your phones.
0: <laughs> Burn the phones.
1: Because I was I've been trying really hard lately to literally just not ever pick up my phone. And do you know what? It's working very well. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, it's so simple. We need to just do a few episodes on phones probably, but it's just Yeah. It's really liberating and you have time for your little societies, you have time for your hobbies. Whereas now it's like, I don't have time to do anything. Like, I have to work in solo scene all the time. I have to go to my job. I have to do this. But it's just like, when you just stop putting like four hours a day into the screens, you suddenly have four hours, which over a week, it's like many more hours.
0: Yeah, I had um, most of my notes. My notes was just a big drawing of an aquarium. And I kind of labeled it with various aesthetic qualities that I thought could somehow inform the solo scene. And really the dominant one was silence. And I think this is one of my main magnetisms toward the ocean world in the poem i said perhaps it's just an introvert's paradise but it's the fact that sound doesn't travel there and while we're recording this we have to take pauses every 30 seconds as a massive truck drives by or indeed a strange man singing opera on the sidewalk
1: yeah let us know if your community has the opera man because we have actually two do we yeah,
0: it's almost like a hey Arnie, hey Arnoldian uh, archetype.
1: Yeah, because there's the one who comes by, but there's also an old man with a stick and a dog. Yeah, who likes to sing operas. But well.
0: it's with this the silence. It's I really i, I want to fast. I want
2: to. I want to, I want to have a
0: to have a stimulus fast. Mm-hmm. But like most people, unfortunately, I've boxed myself into where I cannot for professional reasons. True.
1: <laughs> I've noticed even in yoga classes, a lot of them play music now. And it's like, I'm literally here to meditate, Mm. but there's noise. And of course, noise is useful in meditation settings sometimes, but it's like, does every class need?
0: I mean, it's two things. One, people don't realize that they have broken their, I don't even like the term attention span because it's not exactly that, but they've broken their capacity for stillness. And when people do realize that, Often it's just like a, oh, damn, you know, mm. that sucks. And there isn't the realization that just as you broke it, you can fix it.
1: Mm, I think when people realize they lean into it, like, well, my attention spans this. Exactly. And then just start only consuming 30 second content.
0: That's how I feel, partially, with, with phone and internet, because we need to do it so much for a scene. It's like, well, I can't really reduce my screen time anyway, so in for a penny, in for a pound a little bit.
1: I'm having an idea. Perhaps we could do a mini semester where we try different where we like try stuff for a week and then report on it hmm. so perhaps we try like one week where we have one day where we're allowed screens and all the other days we're not allowed them or doing like a 30 second window i don't know
0: maybe you can be the the Just guinea pig right so some other notes from my hand drawn aquarium the school of fish it's so inspiring how they move together and this is not exactly a one-to-one lesson about people should be uniform and all move at the same speed in the same direction, but it's just something about the grace and the the neatness with which they're all dressed, for one thing, and they all match, which is lovely. But just the way that they kind of slip through that world, and we feel so ungainly in, in comparison, mm-hmm. I... In, I think in the first ever poem for Soa seen on the first episode, there was a line something along the something like, "Humans in the world with humble color, uh, treading on stones as if they tread upon the faces of their mother." And that's how I feel. Fish move, except they don't tread; they just swim. And <laughs> thirdly, the ocean rock, which just inspires me endlessly. And I don't have it, but. Recently, we went to a small, weird, nature-y, urban, Montreal-y event, and there was a lady handing out sprigs and stones and shells, and she was like, oh, do this exercise where you have to really ponder the small, natural trinket you've chosen, and ask yourself the question, I think this is what she said, it was in French, how can you live in a way which honors this? Mm Mm-hmm. And mine was like this small hunk of sea stone, I think.
1: It was really strange because there were only two pieces of the stone on the tray of like a few hundred things. And I was on stage and I was in the audience. And so when we picked our thing, we both picked the two sprigs. And I think it's kind of like this fossilized, yeah, stone.
0: But there's something... I didn't have an answer for how I can live to honor this. Because it's so
1: incredible. I
0: said it reminded me of bread. But it's something about the shape, the texture, the color, which just makes me want to construct fantastical worlds. And I know you always kind of roll your eyes at that because every time we're out somewhere in the wilderness and there'll be like a spectacular view, I'll be like, imagine if there was a big giant beneath that tree or something, and then it stood up and the trees were on its back. But that's just how nature works for me, I guess. And also aquariums give me the same feeling as... Japanese gardens or bonsai where they shrink a world down to the point that you are like this giant in it and it gives you a completely different perspective because aquariums... I mean, also think about it pre-television because now you can set your television up to be a 24-7 live stream of the Pacific Ocean or something like that. Mm -hmm. But before that, it's just this box that you walk around. You can't go in, so it limits your senses akin to a screen, but it's maybe more... Consciously, because for me anyway, the whole time I'm looking at aquarium, there's this yearning where I want to touch that prickly thing, and that starfish mm-hmm. looks like it smells so nice, and the coral just looks like flavored sponge. I want to eat that. You know what I mean? Like there's a there's a sense to it that I don't think most most television or film has. Weirdly enough, maybe it's because you can walk around it. Like it's not completely flat yeah. flat, and the things are actually there. it's but, Dynamic.
1: You're interacting with it. We used yeah, to you can tap on the glass. Exactly. We had cousins who had a really fantastic aquarium and they had a sea anemone, and you could feed it pieces of lettuce, which is just so weird, but also so cool. Mm. I want to say Solicine recommends getting an aquarium, but I'm not 100% sure. I didn't look into the actual ethics for the fish, like how they <laughs> suffer when we went a whole episode say aquariums are really cool. But I think they seem a bit more humane than zoos because they can be a bit more of a whole ecosystem.
0: Yeah. I mean... I also just think that fish are on a lower level of consciousness than our
2: Possible.
1: big mammals. Yeah.
0: And sea anemones certainly. Yeah. I don't think they would notice, but
1: <laughs> they just think they're getting some sweet lettuce treats.
0: Maybe that's a cruel way to end the episode. Do they eat lettuce?
1: That's what we would feed them. I don't think it's what they eat in nature, but <laughs> I think lettuce is just the closest thing to seaweed or something like that. It's
0: like, do they eat lettuce? These ones did. <laughs> they did.
1: <laughs> They Big did.
0: Macs, chicken nuggets, mm-hmm. they eat anything. Wine, <laughs> just pour it in there. Finally, the most abstract point, because I cannot articulate the boat less properly, is that if you picture like aquatic forms, the strange creatures.
1: I'm picturing them.
0: Tendrils, bright orange, the way the starfish move by one leg after another. It's such an alien world and when you th- picture those images or see them on television or see them in an aquarium or my one of my real bucket list items to actually to dive though I'd be quaking with fear probably you can pretend that it's a world apart from humans entirely and that sounds super misanthropic but really it's about plastic we can pretend that we're not destroying that world whereas when you see deer bears snakes and desert birds and cactus i feel like you have this because they're suffering with us Mm -hmm. they're like oh damn these guys are gonna struggle just like we do whereas with ocean stuff you think maybe this world will just glide by ignored even though i know it it's not but you can pretend Mm -hmm. i was reading a little bit about plastic this week and it just
1: that'll weigh you down
0: in the solar scene though
1: no plastic no plastic yeah. So
0: that's what, this, that's what this podcast does for people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They just say, oh, in the soul scene, no plastic. Yeah. And then you come away smiling.
1: Yeah, then you say, today could be the soul scene, no plastic for me.
0: Whoa, no plastic for me.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. So thank you all for listening. We appreciate it. This was a very fun episode, and we hope to see you all next week.